0: Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as we gather together for worship today and uh, glad to see everyone out there. Uh, We're going to be looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 14, and we're going to be reading through chapter 4, verse 5. If you'd like to follow along, let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks once again for the gift of your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself to us in these scriptures. And we pray this morning that you would reveal yourself to us once again. Uh, Lord, as we, as we read your word, as we read about your word this morning, as we hear about uh, what you want to uh, do in us and um, through your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, would you speak to us once again? We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting with chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing today in our series on the living church we've been uh, going through that this fall and we're getting close to the end we have just a couple of Sundays left Um, and what we've been doing in this sermon series is considering what it means to be a church that is alive in Jesus Christ Uh, what does it mean to be a church that is full of the Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, what we want to be here at ICP. We want to be a church that is alive in Christ. We want to be a church that is full of the Holy Spirit. We, we pray to that end that God would be alive in us through his Holy Spirit, that God would be at work among us here at ICP in this congregation, making us alive in him. And one of the things that that we talked about in our first sermon way back in September uh, in this series is the fact that to be a church that is alive, it's not something that we can just bring about for ourselves. Uh, It is a gift of God's grace. God is the one who gives us life. And so if we want to be a church that is alive in Christ, then the best thing we can do is to pray, Lord, make us alive in Christ. Make us alive in Christ. Would your Holy Spirit be at work in us So these things that we've been talking about week in and week out, we've talked about worship and we've talked about evangelism and fellowship and giving, just to name a few, uh, these are best seen as being common marks or characteristics or even practices of churches that are alive. If you are alive in Christ, then these things are going to be seen in the life of that church, be observable in the life of a, a particular church. A church that is alive in Christ will have worship at its center, at the center of its life together. A church that is alive will be one that takes seriously the importance of telling other people the good news of Jesus Christ. They would take seriously evangelism. A living church, the members of a living church will seek to love one another as Christ has loved them and gave up his life for them. And they're going to give generously out of all that God has given to them, recognizing that it's not theirs in the first place, but it's something that they are stewarding for the Lord. A living church is one that will have an influence in the world for Jesus Christ, serving as salt and light. This is what we talked about last week. And so all of these things are things that we would see be true about a living church. And now this week and next, we're going to be looking at what are two of the most basic and fundamental characteristics of a living church, which is a commitment to the word of God and a commitment to prayer. A commitment to the word of God and a commitment to prayer. God's word and prayer. These are essential to any individual's faith in each of our personal faith. We need to be paying attention to God's word. We need to be praying, but also in the life of the church as a whole. These need to be central to what we are doing in our life together. These are both things that, that the early church devoted themselves to. When you read Acts chapter 2, this, this church that formed this early fellowship of believers just after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, we read at the end of Acts chapter 2 a description of that early church and the commitments that they had uh, at that time that have been passed down through all of the history of the church. And reading scripture or the apostles' teaching was something that they devoted themselves to as well as prayer. And so today we're gonna be looking at the role of God's word within the church, and next week we'll be talking about prayer. So God's word, God's word plays a central role in the life of the church. I like what John Webster, a, a theologian that I've come to really respect and appreciate, I like what he says about the church's relationship to God's word. He says this, "'The church of Jesus Christ is defined by, "'among other things,' Two very basic activities that it undertakes. The activity of hearing God's word and the activity of speaking God's word. That is, the church is both a hearing church and a teaching church. Whatever else the church may do in its praying and celebration of the sacraments, in its service to the world, in its fellowship and in its suffering, hearing and speaking, listening to God and proclamation are fundamental. Webster goes on to say that it's the word of God that makes the church the church. It is the word of God that makes the church the church. The church was called into being by God's word. The church is sustained by God's word. And it is given its future in God's word. And so it is for the church to listen to God's word and to tend to it closely. And then to teach it and to proclaim it so that others might hear it. And we see both of these acts, both listening and speaking, reflected in our passage from 2 Timothy this morning. So we're going to take a little bit closer look here. And before we get to our actual passage for this morning, we give a little bit of context for 2 Timothy. Whenever we're sort of hopscotching from verse to verse or passage to passage through a sermon series, it's good to, to know a little bit about what's happening. What, what was Paul actually writing about? What was going on there? So uh, when this letter was written, the uh, 2 Timothy, Paul was an old man at this point, and he knew that his life was going to be over soon. We think it's the, the last letter that he wrote. And he's under arrest, he's, he's waiting for the sentence on his life to be carried out. And so these are the last words that we have any record of that the Apostle Paul wrote. And we see in them what Paul is really concerned about before he goes, before he leaves this life, what his priorities are, and what he wants to make sure that he has covered before he leaves this world. And his first concern here is, is that Timothy would stay strong in his faith. That he would not be led astray by anything. When you read through the Old Testament, I think it's really astounding how much of it was written to uh, warn people against false teachings and being led astray. This is a theme that we see over and over and over again in the New Testament that people would not be led astray by false teaching. And that's one of the things that Paul is saying here to Timothy stay strong in your faith, don't be led astray, that he would continue in what he has learned and what he has truly believed. And then his next concern is that Timothy would continue to preach God's word so that others would not be led astray either. These concerns of Paul's are reflected in an earlier verse uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, which says this, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. This is a a verse that that, uh, I memorized years ago uh, at a time when I was doing lots of scripture memory, and I've always understood it to be sort of a template for discipleship. Paul is saying, pass down the faith. Pass down the faith. What I have given to you, I want you to give to others so that they will then give it to others. You see what's going on there. We see four different generations represented in this pattern of discipleship here. What I've given you, take and pass on to others so that they will pass on to others. And so the the faith will continue to be passed down from generation to generation to generation. So that those who come after Paul and then those who come after Timothy might hear and know. And respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. And what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, what we just read, is a verse that lays out for us all that Paul is hoping to accomplish in this letter in general, in 2 Timothy. He wants the faith to be passed on, and he believes that Timothy has an important role in that happening. And it's this idea that today's passage picks up on. And again, later in the letter, Paul says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And Paul is reemphasizing for Timothy the fact that he has received something from others. Timothy was fortunate. He grew up in in a family that uh, was uh, full of believers. His mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois, uh, were believers. And so Timothy, from a very young age, was brought up in the faith. And then somewhere along the line, he met Paul. And Paul uh, also mentored him and discipled him. What we see in this relationship between Paul and Timothy is that these two have a long history with each other. They've been through a lot together, and they know each other really well. And Paul has played a major role in Timothy's life. He's mentored him in his faith and ministry. He's discipled him. And so Paul has a lot invested in Timothy and in seeing his ministry succeed. But there's also a lot more to it than that. Because there's a deep love and intimacy between these two men that we get to see play out in the pages of this letter. If we look at the beginning of this letter, the greeting that Paul writes to Timothy is he calls him, My beloved child. And if you go back to Paul's first letter to Timothy, he addresses him as my true child in the faith. And so we see that these two really love each other and Paul really cares for Timothy and he wants to see him flourish in his faith. And so these are Paul's two charges to Timothy that we see in our passage today. One is this, continue in what you have learned and truly believed. In other words, listen to God, pay attention to God's word. This is what you have learned. This is what you have truly believed. Continue in that. Pay attention to it. And the second is this. Preach the word. Preach the word. Proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And both of these are are part of what is always Paul's main concern, which is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would continue to spread and to grow and to take root in people's lives. That it would call them to repentance to turning around their lives, which are going in the wrong direction, and that it would lead people to salvation, to new life in Jesus Christ. And we see that this is a letter to Timothy, Paul's disciple, but I think we also need to hear it as a word to us as the church. It's not just for Timothy, but what Paul is charging Timothy with here, he is charging to all of us as his followers, the followers of Jesus Christ, even now. Paul doesn't go into the details of the gospel in these verses that we read this morning, but we've seen it already in 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, Paul says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He puts it a little more succinctly and personally in 1st Timothy when he says this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I love that uh, synopsis of the gospel right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. This is the good news that turned Paul's life around that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It saved Paul from his life of anger, it saved him from his life of of hatred, of judgment of other people, of persecuting the early church, and it brought him new life in Jesus Christ. And his life was never the same after that a life of joy and of peace and of assurance. And this is the same good news that still calls us to repentance today, that says, look at your life and see where it is going in the wrong direction. See where it is in your life that you are being led astray and turn back to Christ and find new life in him. This is the good news that Timothy has been taught since his childhood. And this is the good news that Paul wants for him to continue in and to preach to others. And Paul here lays out for Timothy the importance of God's word for both of these charges that he's given to him. The scriptures, the word of the Lord, God's revelation of himself to us through these written words. Paul is saying to Timothy in no uncertain terms that the the scriptures, these, these holy writings that make up the Bible, are necessary for being established and rooted and growing in Christ. And the reason for that has to do with both the source of the scriptures and their purpose. Who they come from and why they have been given to us. And this brings us to one, another of my memory verses. I have a lot of verses from 2 Timothy that I've memorized, I realize. Uh, but this one's from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which we just read. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why is God's word so important? Why is God's word so important? Why do we place such an emphasis on it in the church? Why is it the central piece of our worship service every week? Hearing God's word read and proclaimed. Because of its source and because of its purpose. Again, in other words, who it comes from and why it was given to us. Paul tells us right here in these verses that all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. I love love that image, that all scripture is God-breathed. It gives us a picture of these words coming right out of God's mouth. It's not to take away from the fact that the, that the Bible was written over hundreds of years by multiple authors who all had their own personalities and contexts that they were writing in, but it does leave no question for us as to the ultimate source of this book. These words come to us from God. But the phrase God breathed brings to mind another image for us as well, or at least I hope it does, uh, another image it should bring to mind, and one that is very helpful for us and how we think about scripture. Because in Genesis chapter two, we're told that God breathed into Adam. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and God breathed the breath of life into him, and he became a living being. And then we remember again in in the gospel of John chapter 20 that the risen Jesus Christ breathed on his disciples, giving them the Holy Spirit, And so by saying that these words, that that all scripture is God-breathed, Paul is not simply saying that God is the source of these words, but that the Spirit of God inhabits these words, giving them life and making them a source of life for God's people, the church. We remember that Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy when he was in the desert being tempted by the devil and he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? The word of the Lord is alive and it feeds us, it nourishes us. As Hebrews 4 says uh, in chapter, uh, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. These are living words that we're dealing with when we deal with Scripture. And reflecting on on this verse from Hebrews, uh, the theologian and pastor Carl Barth says this, that the whole of Scripture is literally of the Spirit of God. That is, it is given and filled and ruled by the Spirit of God and actively outbreathing and spreading abroad and making known the Spirit of God. All of that is happening in this book that we call the Bible. Another scholar and, and pastor that you've heard me quote before, N.T. Wright, uh, he recounts the story of an American couple uh, who moved to Oxford, England in the 1950s. And who were enjoying exploring the ancient town where they had just moved. It actually reminds me a little bit of of coming to Prague as an American, right? Uh, Exploring this this ancient city uh, and getting to walk around amidst all of these old buildings and and seeing where uh, things are and what appeared to them like the remains of an ancient and crumbling stone building was before them at some point when they were walking around Oxford. And the wife of the couple all of a sudden spotted uh, windows with curtains in them in this building that they thought was a ruin. And all of a sudden she exclaims to, oh, and she sees people inside and they're going about her business and she exclaims, honey, these ruins are inhabited. And She wrote a whole book about it uh, called These Ruins Are Inhabited. But N.T. Wright says this, many people who open the Bible at random have an experience just like this woman at Oxford. Right? Many people who open their Bible at random have an experience just like this woman at Oxford. To begin with, it looks like a jumble of old bits and pieces of writing, a rag bag of poetry, history, folk tales, ethical instructions, and some strange stories about some even stranger people. And reading it can seem, at least to begin with, like wandering through old car- courtyards where somebody once lived, But a long time ago, perhaps you have had that experience when you have opened the scriptures and read them before. But Wright goes on to say, but then just when you're tempted to put the whole thing aside as interesting, perhaps, but not really relevant, you sense movement and life. Something is stirring. There's an energy as though someone's left the light on or music playing in that old building. Maybe it's inhabited after all it seems to have a life, a breath even. The early Christians believed that the reason that the scriptures were alive was because God had breathed them in the first place. And the warmth and life of that creative breath was still present and powerful in them, even them. And we believe it is still present and powerful in God's word even today. What I appreciate about this story is that it it acknowledges the difficulty that many of us have in reading scripture. It can be hard and it can be strange. And we're not always sure, if we're honest, we're not always sure exactly what we're supposed to get out of it, especially when we're reading Leviticus, right? Uh, We don't always know what to do with what we're reading or or, or what, what does God have for us in this particular passage or this particular book. And yet, we have this sense that it's really important, and that as Christians, we are supposed to spend time with God's word. The Bible often seems to us like more of a historical artifact, something that we go and look at in a museum, something that's under a glass case, rather than something that is living and breathing and active. But Wright also acknowledges the living, God-breathed nature of these words, and if we stick with them, if we, if we continue in what we have learned and in what we have truly believed, then God will use his word in our lives to give us wisdom for salvation. It is pre- precisely because of the Holy Spirit's presence in these words, because of their living nature, that they are useful to us, that they are profitable for us. They teach us, they rebuke us, they correct us, and they train us for righteousness so that we may be equipped, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. Paul says that the scriptures teach us, they tell us who God is. And they tell us who we are as human beings in light of who God is. And they tell us about God's plan for the world, his redeeming work through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. And the word of God also rebukes us. There is no doubt that the Scriptures scriptures often have a hard word for us because our lives often get off track. And we have blind spots about ourselves. And if you think that you don't have blind spots about yourself, then that is a blind spot that you have about yourself, okay? And often, all too often, we return to our sin. We return to our pride, and we return to our anger, and we return to our judgment. We return to our lusts and our self-indulgent behaviors, and they get the better of us. And these are things that lead down the road to death and to separation from God. But the word of God will come in and speak God's no to us in these places. Showing us where we are wrong and reminding us of the consequences of our actions, both for ourselves and for other people. So the word of God rebukes us. But then the great thing is, after, after the scriptures rebuke us, they correct us. And in this, we see God's love and grace at work. Sometimes they, they correct us gently and lovingly. Sometimes they correct us directly and firmly They call us to leave our sin behind and live into the holy calling that God has placed on us. The scriptures rebuke us saying, don't do that. But they also correct us saying, live this way instead. This is the way that leads to life. And the scriptures train us for righteousness. They teach us how to live according to God's goodness and his righteousness and his justice. How does God want us to live? How does God want us to live? The scriptures will show us. And through all of this, God uses his word to thoroughly equip us for every good work. These are the good works that the book of Ephesians says were prepared in advance for us to do. And I hope you see that there is a trajectory here that Paul says continue in what you have learned and believed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't stray from it, don't leave it behind. Remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And this gospel has been given to you in the scriptures. So listen to them, tend to them, pay attention. These living and Holy Spirit filled words, don't leave those behind. Be committed to them and God will use them to transform your life. And as your life is transformed by God's word, the fruits will be obvious in how you live through your good deeds. And then Paul tells Timothy to go and be faithful in preaching this word of God for the benefit of others. Because Paul knows how prone we human beings are to being led astray and to following the false teachings that tell us whatever it is that we want to hear. Paul says uh, that there is a time that will come when people won't want to hear sound doctrine. They won't stand for it. And they will turn away from the truth and they will turn to myths. And it's easy maybe to look at the world around us, to to read the news of what's going on in in wherever place, and to think, yes, this is what is happening right now. This is that time Paul is talking about, that people have turned away from the truth, and they've turned to miss, And, and maybe that's true. But Paul is saying that this can happen in the church as well, and that we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't get led astray And people will actively seek out teachers and leaders who say what we want them to say that will tickle our itching ears. And they will say what we want them to and not what we need them to, which is the truth of the gospel. And so as Paul says to Timothy and to the whole church, really, keep preaching the word in season and out of season in good times and in bad, preach it to each other within the church and preach it to the world. Don't stop, because people will always need to hear it. And we never know when or where or with whom the seed of God's word will land in someone's heart and take root and grow into faith. So Paul says, listen to God's word. Be a hearing church, tend to it. And Paul says, preach God's word. Correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Be a proclaiming church. There is no substitute for the word of God in the life of faith. There is no substitute for the word of God in the life of faith. One last quote uh, before we, we wrap up today, and this is from the reformer John Calvin. I have to fit Calvin in from time to time as a Presbyterian. So, uh, but he summarizes so well why the word of God is so important. In his commentary on John's gospel, Calvin says this, we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. We ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Our Lord Jesus Christ has made himself known to us through his word, these scriptures, and we encounter him there when we read and study and listen to them in faith. When we read the scriptures, are we comforted and encouraged? Yes, because in them we encounter Christ. When we read the scriptures, do we gain insight into the purpose of life? Yes, because we encounter Christ. When we read the scriptures, are we convicted of our sin and inspired to live more devout and holy lives? Yes, because we encounter Christ. Are we taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness? As Paul writes, yes, because in the scriptures, we encounter Christ. Christ. Friends, there is much for us in this passage today, uh, but my main hope and prayer is that we might commit ourselves to reading and studying God's holy word. I've often thought that the best way that any of us can serve our church is by committing ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's word. Above anything else, if, if we want to serve this body, if we want to see this church grow in Christ, then we should read God's word and pray first and foremost. My my prayer is also that we might approach God's word in faith, that the Holy Spirit would use it to transform our lives more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I don't pretend that reading scripture this way is easy. It's not for me because it takes time and it takes work and it takes commitment But it's like anything else that is good for us, like exercise or or like eating healthy foods or or budgeting our money, it's hard, especially at first. And we don't often see the benefits right away, and it's easy to become discouraged and to get thrown off track very quickly. But over time, we are blessed by the benefits of it, and we see the difference that it makes in our lives. So I want to close today with Psalm, uh, a passage from Psalm 119, whose author has discovered the goodness and the benefit of God's word and has seen its transformative power in their life. If you've never read uh, Psalm 119 before, it's the the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And there's a lot in there in it about God's law and about God's word. And we're not going to read all of it this Morning. I think we have time, though, if we wanted to. But we're not going to read all of it this morning. Uh, We're just going to read a few of these verses today. Verses 97 through 104. So hear with me again the word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, and therefore I hate every wrong path." Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the the gift and goodness of your word. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that you have seen fit to offer yourself to us in this way. And so we pray that we would be hearing and proclaiming people, that we would be a hearing and proclaiming church. Lord, that you would call us to pay attention to the scriptures, to what we have been given, to what we have known and believed, that we would not depart from it. And we pray also, Lord, that we would be faithful to to preach it to one another within this church, within this fellowship, but also to the world around us so that others might hear your word and respond to it in faith. So we thank you for all you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.